What's up, guys? It's David Hess from the Rising Above podcast. Have you ever thought or dreamed about starting a podcast? Well, look no further. Anchor has all the tools necessary to record a podcast from your computer or phone. You heard that right. They make it so simple. When you host your podcast on Anchor, they will distribute your podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Honestly, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place, which is why I host on Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. This episode is brought to you by Red Bike Delivery. This delivery service operates only using battery-powered, eco-friendly transportation. Red Bike Delivery is there for all your delivery needs, whether it's dinner for the family, flowers for your partner, or new houseplants for your new collection. Red Bike Delivery will gladly deliver those and everything in between. So what are you waiting for? Check out Red Bike Delivery on Facebook or Instagram for more information. Red Bike Delivery, because there's only one earth. Welcome to the Rising Above podcast. My name is David Hess, and today I have Elizabeth Ramirez with me. She is from Texas, and um, she has an incredible story. She is a, an exoneree, and uh, I I don't really want to steal her thunder. I'll let her explain what happened. Um, but with that being said, could you uh, uh, introduce yourself? Tell me where you were born and raised. Are you from originally from Texas? Yes. Um, so my name is Elizabeth Ramirez. I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I'm an exoneree and I'm part of the San Antonio Four. Uh, we were wrongfully accused and exonerated in uh, 2016. Um, we were found actually innocent and all our charges were expunged in 2018. Um, back in 1994, so I'll give you a little background on, on the case. Back in uh, 1994, um, I was uh, picked up for questioning. Um, my nieces, my brother-in-law, and my two nieces had um, accused us of sexually assaulting them, and me and my friends. So it was three other friends that um, knew, one of them out of high school. And um, in 95, we got arrested. Uh, they had accused us uh, because we were gay that we had sacrificed my nieces in the altar. And I don't know if you remember the satanic panic at that time, mm-hmm. back in the 90s. So we were kind of like the last gasp um, during that whole, you know, scenario and time frame. And it was four lesbians. And um, I was tried first because they believed I was a ringleader. Um, and so in 97, uh, I got convicted of the crime and um, got 37 and a half years. Wow. How old were you? I was... Well, with the when it first started, 19, and um, when everything was pretty much all over, I was like 42. Wow. So it was long going, like 20 something years, 25 years that we fought the case, and um, you know it's been a long struggle since. You know, kind of grew up in prison in my 20s and 30s, and come home to a society that has been just grown so much technology you know life itself just kept moving and i was just kind of stuck in prison you know right but i was grateful for the innocence project they um opened the doors and um you know they how they say when you're in prison that everyone needs a voice from the outside and that's kind of what happened for us i met a gentleman from um from uh 
Canada, Daryl Otto, who helped um, with the case. We started off with the NCRJ, and then we went from the NCRJ to the Innocence Project. They took over, and then we, you know, went through the polygraphs and the sexual um, evaluations and and the whole process of everything. And um, because I didn't, I had so much time, I wasn't able to come up for parole. But the other three girls were able to come up for parole before I did. And so I did 17 years out of my 37 years. Wow. Where I was able to come out on bond. And so it was a difficult because even though, you know, I was out on bond and the Innocence Project was, you know, we're in the process of still fighting uh, for a new hearing. It was like, you know, we came home. It was hard to find a job because, you know, they, even though you're kind of like, you're fighting the case, everything still is in a standstill. You still have the charges. And so they did background checks. It was hard to find jobs. Um, and every time we did, we had to explain the whole process to them. Um, we still had to report, you know, if they wanted us to take drug tests or whatever. We had to be available to do that. Um, but we, we reported regularly, like every month and um, went up there and, and uh, it was a pretrial. And you, of course, yes. And have you been close to the victim? Have you, you know, done anything any different or anything of that sort? So that's kind of how everything went for till this 2013, 20, 2016 before we got exonerated. Wow. That's a, that's a lot that <laughs> you just unloaded. <laughs> um, yeah. What was it like? Because you, you were in your 20s when you were accused. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was what, 19. You were 19. What was, what was your plans for life at that point? I mean, obviously you weren't planning on spending your life in prison. Um, <laughs> and when you got accused, what, what was life like at that moment? When I was, um, at that time I was pregnant and I was having my, my, I was pregnant with my son and it was, uh, I was going to raise him alone. Um, I was working at, um, at a taco, uh, taco cabana as a supervisor. And I had just, um, I had taken my CNA and I kind of left the medical field because I had gotten really sick. You kind of get used to, you know, the way of life working in the medical field. And I got really attached to my patients. And so I worked with a lot of elderly and I uh, had during that time, a lot of them were passing away and being young and working, you know, with, with patients, that have illnesses, you know, diabetes, and you just see them deteriorate. It was just too emotional for me. You know, I got really attached to them. And, and I, I thought that was the kind of life I wanted because I love helping people. I love, you know, reaching out and doing for others. But it was just so much um, for someone my age and still kind of, you know, learning life, you know? Mm, yeah. And, um, wow. And then this happened. And it was like, what do I do now? You know, now here I am working to try to pay for an attorney and I have um, a baby on the way. I'm going to raise him by myself. Like, you know, what's next? And I had no idea what my life was going to be like. Uh, I knew that I didn't do anything wrong. I knew that I was innocent. But and I would I would tell myself, how can I convict somebody for something they didn't do? Like, how do you prove that? You know, mm -hmm. how can you get something when I didn't do anything, you know? And um, from then on, my life was just crazy. I, I didn't know what my next step was. So it's like I worked just to pay for my legal fees and try to enjoy the little that I could. And then after I had my baby in 95, they came and arrested us. And everything just started going from there. 
Wow. And at that point, obviously, you have no no hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at that time, it was like, even because I was gay, you know, Hispanic, female, I was poor. You know, I didn't have any means. I'd never been in trouble. Um, I didn't know the system. Uh, man, I, I couldn't even tell you what a civil attorney was to a criminal attorney. <laughs> I was so naive with the system. And it's sad that, you know, a lot of us growing up in that era, it's, we don't talk about, you know, getting the law and things like that. Everybody kind of like, especially a Hispanic family, you know, we kind of just go with life and, you know, we weren't thinking about things like that, or at least I wasn't, you know, we're all good people. You know, me and my friends all, you know, kind of just live life and was just trying to, to work on our futures, you know, and see, you know, what life had for us, you know, to go for, right. you know, um, and then all this just kind of took everything from us. And that was one of the things um, that I had a hard time with uh, when I went to prison is that, you know, my friends, their lives, you know, we were all young and because they were associated with me, you know, their whole life was taken from them. You know, um, my best friend, Cassie had two babies mm -hmm. and my son was just two when I left. It was hard be torn apart from our children, you know, and with the case that we had, we had no contact with them, you know, because of the charges, of course, you know, the prison system doesn't allow you to have contact with children under the age of 18. And so it was difficult to have that communication or, well, for myself, um, I didn't get any visits from my son. I got letters, you know, um, as often as I could that my mom could, you know, get for me because um, his dad, you know, use my charges against me to, you know, to get custody of him. So I had no rights to him. You know? Wow. That, is, that, <laughs> that is so sad. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that because I'm a father and I couldn't imagine, you know, going to prison and not being able to see your kids, even in prison. That's tough. I mean, you think, um, think about it, you know, David, when you sit there, like for me, you know, at night, um, I don't know, you kind of collect all your thoughts and you're like, okay, what did I accomplish today? You know, what can I do better for myself for tomorrow? Or what can I change to be a better person or be in, and, and you think, and you, you sit there and you're like, well, I wonder what my son, his name is Hector. And I was like, I wonder what Hector's doing. I wonder what he likes to eat. I wonder what his favorite color is. You know, he was two when I, he was going to be two when I left and he was 18 when I came home. Wow. My gosh. So it was, it was hard, you know, it was really hard to think about those things at night and, and I would pray every night that God would protect them and send them good people to, you know, protect, to watch him and guide him in the right direction and give him the love that I couldn't because, you know, I didn't have any communication with him. Right. I, you know, I wrote him plenty of letters, you know, whether he got them all or not, but I, you know, would draw pictures for him and I always, you know, said prayers for him and try to keep that communication. And I got one letter from him back in 2003 and i have that letter framed wow. i've kept that letter since then what got you through prison because obviously going in at a very young age losing your son and um looking at a very lengthy sentence i i would imagine that for most people that would be it i, I know for me i'd be like i i, I could end this right now yeah. You know, what, what got you through that? 
I think for me was, you know, at the beginning, getting going in there and not knowing the system and, and, you know, it's kind of living two different lives, you know, you're in there and you're like, now you have to survive and you kind of become what the prison is because you have to not show emotion. You can't, you know, really cry and break down because people think you're weak, you know? So you kind of learn to like deal with things like internal and become kind of unemotional, mm. you know? I don't know if that makes any sense, but like you can't in your time, like for me it would be in the shower when I, you know, I had a little time to cry where you can't tell I was crying and kind of throw water in my face and stuff. But I prayed a lot. If I would tell you that I went to church a lot, I did. And I think that was, you know, how they say when, um, when you hit rock bottom, all you could do is look up. It's the truth. <laughs> you know, you have to hold on to something that would get you through it and make you feel like, you know, every day um, I was fighting and I knew that I couldn't give up. Um, I, um, I had a son, you know, at home in San Antonio. I had friends that were incarcerated that I needed to try to figure out a way for us to get home. You know, I wrote letters for, for years, if I tell you, since 97 to 2010 started helping with Daryl Otto. I never gave up. You know, it was like, you know how they, they say you're, you're afraid to just keep going and believing and believing and, and something will come through, you know? Mm-hmm. And I always believed that the truth would come out and I would pray and pray and pray and just ask God, you know, to bring people into my lives and, and to, you know, make a way. And, you know, a lot of times they say, I've heard so many sermons where people talk about you know, you have to have faith. You have to believe. And there's this little rock I ke- I've kept for a lot, for a lot of years. It says faith on there. Okay. Yeah. So, like, whenever I have hard days, these this is what I kind of hold on to because it was that that carried me through. You know, I, everybody kind of has, you know, their own belief and their own, you know, strength that they, you know, grab from. And mine was my faith that, you know, one day, you know, and um, I had peace. I had peace within myself because I knew that that I didn't do anything wrong, you know, and I lived with myself. What, you know? what kind of things did you do in your pastime in prison? Obviously, you said you wrote some letters and you wrote friends and family members um, and you drew. What what other things did you do? Did you get an education while you were in there? Or? Well, you know, because um, I had so much time, I'm considered like um, the last resort for anyone to be able to, to get an education. It had to be someone like t- 15 to 10 years okay. less. Wow. So they can, you know, I guess get the education or the training they need to go home. And so I wasn't able to do that. So what I did was um, I worked at the print shop. We had a TDC print shop and I knew, you know, I calculated all my years and I would have been 62 years old before I would be able to come home. I knew that I was going to have to learn a trade. You know, uh, so much time had already passed that I needed to learn something that I could hold on to that I can make a living with coming home. I mean, 62 years old, what can you really do? Or how much strength will I have at that time? Or where would I be, you know, health-wise? Printing is what I did. I learned how to work on the copiers. Um, a little bit of graphic design, a little bit of here and there to be able to learn and to be able to take that with me. And that's kind of what I um, I held on to. And in my mind, it was like the system couldn't take that from me. 
You know, that was one thing that I could do for myself was feed myself and and learn and and take everything that I could to make me a better person out there and to be able to survive in the world of society with a trade. Right. You know, and so I worked at the print shop and I learned everything I possibly could from shipping to, you know, um, a friend of mine used to do bids to graphic design to, you know, running machines. Okay. I can do something, you know, even if it was just bindery work or something, I was able to to do that. And I learned everything I possibly could so that I can have that trade and survive. Is that applicable to being out of prison now? Yes. Actually, I'm working at a prison. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm going to school right now for a paralegal. I had to actually taken a paralegal course incarcerated and I have my certificate, but they don't really recognize it because it's through Stratford. And um, I guess, you know, I didn't have any access to like computers, but I did all my book work, um, which I had my transcripts. But um, either way, I'm going through my paralegal. So I'm at, at a community college right now. Okay. And so I'm pursuing that. And so the print shop kind of works with me. You know, I'm able to go to school and then go to work and still kind of pick up my hours. And so it's a balance, you know, but um, yeah, everything that I learned in prison, I'm able to apply here um, out, outside when the floor, as they call it, you know? Right. That, that's awesome. I'm, I'm happy that you were able to, to do something like that. Um, I, I interview a lot of, well, I've interviewed a couple uh, junior lifers that, you know, mm-hmm. have gone into prison, at, uh, like in their teenage years, and they don't get out until they're, you know, 40, almost 40 years old. And uh, a couple of them have gotten educations while they were in there. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things is I wanted to mention was one of the guys I interviewed, he's, he's an advocate for a, a thing here in Michigan that's called Good Time Makes Good Sense. And mm-hmm. what that is, it, it's, it's a program that, not really a program, but legislation that they're trying to pass um, here in Michigan, where if you have good behavior in prison, it counts towards your sentence, you know, mm-hmm. so if you're if you're good, if you have good behavior, they take time off your sentence. Because um, Michigan doesn't have anything like that. Like if they say you're serving 15 to 20 years, you're serving 20 years. Right. Um, and so, um, but one, one of the things I had asked him, I was like, how did you survive prison? And he was like, you know, everybody asks me that question. How did you survive prison? He's like, but the truth is, is I didn't. He's like, prison broke me and, and I became part of that system. And wow. when you had mentioned that you became part of that system, it, it reminded me of what he had said. Yeah, you know, you kind of, um, there's a lot of things in there that you have to do. Um, you know, there there's there was like elderly people there and you would see them fall or, you know, wanted to help them out or some people that didn't get, you know, money to be able to eat. And you get in trouble if you kind of share your food or, wow. you know, somebody out up and you hold their hand. They call it a sex case. Wow. You know, I already have an aggravated sexual assault and it's to a child. So something of that nature I would pick up. Then, of course, it's going to look bad on parole if I ever came up for parole, you know, right. and. So it's hard. It was hard. You know, you had to like be unemotional and, you know, the charges that I had, I'm sure with other people you've interviewed, you know, with different charges, it's different. And because mine is with a, a sexual assault to a child, people don't see that very lightly. No, no. I mean, I'm sure most people, when they hear that, they're like, oh, wow, she's a piece of crap. You know, yes. how, how could you do that to a kid? Yes. Um, when in reality, you know, it's, it was based on fabrication. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I've interviewed some people 
one one of the guys I interviewed, he actually um, he tried doing a, a bank heist. <laughs> that that was an interesting one. And then uh, another guy, he uh, attempted murder, and so that was also interesting. And like sitting across the table from him, and he's telling me that he tried killing somebody. <laughs> and I'm like, but he's a super nice guy, you know. He's out now, and he's doing well. Um, so, at what point? And during your sentence, did things start turning around for you? Um, did you reach out to the Innocence Project and then they helped you? Um, actually, you know, uh, I had reached out to the Innocence Project way before 2010. And because I didn't have any new evidence to present for the case, they had denied me. Oh. And so I don't know if you know, like, the process of the Innocence Project, but they kind of, like, look at your case and they, like, look at your transcripts and they see if there's any like new evidence they can have on your case to reopen it and find it. And so um, for, uh, for me at the time when I wrote them and they told me, you know, there was nothing they can do unless I had, you know, new evidence, then, you know, reach out to them. And so, and I can't remember what year that was. I remember I had saved the letter, but um, so that happened to me and I continued, I didn't give up. And so then I went on writerprisoners.com and I put an ad up for um, legal assistance. And um, I met a gentleman from from Canada that was a professor. And I guess he was doing um, like a statistics or something on like uh, sexual assault cases or like pedophiles or something. And um, he came across mine and uh, he wrote me and I wrote him back and we continued corresponding. And he asked, you know, hey, you know, what happened? You know, why did you know get charged? And I said, well, there's, you know, tell me about your case. And I'm like, there's really nothing to say. You know, I didn't do it. You know, me or my friends, none of us committed the crime. There's not much I can tell you about it besides the fact that we're innocent. And of course, he continued, you know, and then in 2010, there was an article with Michelle Mondo that came out on our case. And um, uh, we put an application with the NCRJ, which is the National Coalition for Reason and Justice. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Daryl Otto got with them. And then we got in with the Innocence Project. And then uh, Mike Ware um, took the case. Uh, he came to the prison and spoke to us and, you know, um, told me, you know, we're going to do a polygraph and then we'll, we'll go from there. We'll see, you know, where that stands. If, you know, we can, you know, uh, find out that you're, you're inconclusive or, you know, that you're telling the truth, then we can go from there. And so you already know when your life is, you know, this is either going to make me or, you know, <laughs> right. So you're nervous and you're like, oh, my God, I hope I answer the right thing. I hope, you know, and I remember going in there, David, and I prayed and I was like, God, please, like, you know, this is my opportunity for to tell the truth and for someone to help us. You know, I know you didn't bring me this far for me to just like fail and then, you know, close the door, Mm -hmm. you know. And so um, so we took the polygraph. And so all four of us took the polygraph and the Innocence Project ended up taking our case. Wow. Then um, a little while later, my uh, niece came forward and confessed that nothing had happened. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, after my niece came forward, I don't know if you've been able to see the documentary. But I didn't. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that there was one. Yeah, it's um, called uh, Southwest of Salem, the story of the San Antonio Fort. OK, where can that be found? Um, actually, you can. It's it. From my understanding, I just found out that um, they have it on. Um, uh, what is that little app? I think it's like Tubi or something. But it's on Amazon. 
for sure. Okay. Amazon or um, I think it's on Hulu also. Okay. And uh, one more time, what was that called? Um, Southwest of Salem, the oh. story of the sentence before. Mm -hmm. Okay. It gonna... was during the panic. So you remember Southwest of Salem? So, and okay. if you just go like 724, it'll pop up. Okay. You'll be able to see it. But um, in the documentary, um, what I liked about it is that um, it told all our stories. Uh, each, each, all four of us were able to kind of talk and they interviewed us. Um, the documentary was um, made very well with Deb Eskenazi. Uh, Javier Limon, which was my brother-in-law, came out on that. My niece came out um, where she uh, met with Mike Ware and confessed to him that, you know, nothing had ever happened. And um, during the time, whenever she did, my brother-in-law found out and tried to take her kids from her. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, he tried to take the kids from her, took her to court and everything. And thank God that she kept custody of them and they uh, denied him that. Um, and of course, it was because he was angry that she was telling the truth. Um, unfortunately, my other niece didn't come forward, but she did. And then uh, we had our hearing and we had, you know, all these evaluations and polygraphs done and, you know, all these things. And then finally, in, um, we got out in 2013 and then, um, you know, living out in the world and kind of readjusting to society. But every day was like, is today going to be my last day? Right. You know, it's what, what was it like coming out of prison? Because when you went into prison, it was in the 90s, correct? Right. I, I was born in 93. So oh. <laughs> I'm a 90s baby. But growing up, you know, obviously technology has pro like there's been such great progression with technology um, mm -hmm. within the last 25 years. And when you went in, there wasn't really much technology computers weren't where they are now phones definitely were not where they are now and then you got out kind of in the height of it all yeah what was that like it was you know what it was frustrating if, if that's even the word i can use for that um i remember before getting you know going into prison they had the pagers remember the beepers yep. and <laughs> i pressed what is it like 911 when it was important for you to you know return a car or something yeah but, um, and I believe it was, you know, those big old cell phones with the big, thick antennas on the top. <laughs> yeah, the big black bricks. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that was what was out. So when I came home, if I tell you, I didn't know how to um, send an email. I, my mom had a flip phone for me when I came home. I, if I tell you how many people I had to apologize for hanging up on them. <laughs> no idea how the buttons on them and you know and it was a little flip phone so it was like it was hard to just you know kind of learn every i mean it's like coming home and learning to walk all over again like it was hard you know it was very frustrating you know trying to get your driver's license your social security card and you know a lot of us david don't have family that you know to come home to right. fortunately have my family and the support of the other girls and all of us kind of stuck together and helped each other out but, you know, not everybody has that, you know, and it's sad because so much time passes by, you know, when you have a wrongful conviction that, you know, you come home and it's a whole new different world. Mm. How do you, you know, come back into a society that you don't recognize? Right. We were driving back in the van and we had to stop for some gas and we were looking and there was two girls talking, you know, I guess changing out the trash and stuff. And we saw them kissing and we're like, oh my God, 
two girls can kiss out in public? <laughs> you could do that now? <laughs> yeah. You would never see that ever before. You know, it was so hard coming out in the 90s. You know, all the gay bashing, you know. Right. They looked at you crazy. and So you were never affectionate out in public ever. You know, I never was. You know, I barely even did anything, you know, in the privacy of my own apartment, you know, because I never, you know, wanted my family or anybody to, you know, kind of look at me crazy or whatever, you know. Right. Um, coming out, we saw that and we were like all in shock. And then coming out here and seeing that, you know, it was that, you know, that lifestyle was accepted. And um, and the technology was just so overwhelming because everything we I remember you know Cass and me tell the story all the time you know we used to go to the stores and put applications mm, yeah it's done online nothing you know, was person to person like you know sometimes you you know you kind of want to meet the individual that's going to come work for your company right and you don't do that anymore you know so it was hard it, it was hard to kind of learn all of that you know the, the Wi-Fi system, I mean, even to this day, you know, kind of remembering your password. And I'm not even going to lie. I have a phone and I have all these numbers. Ask me if I know anybody's number. I don't. I don't think anybody does. <laughs> I don't. I know my I wife's number. That's it. <laughs> you know, and that's it. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. And then um, another thing that um, it, I kind of shocked me was, you know, you went out to a restaurant. And you don't see people talking very much anymore. Yeah. Everybody's see, glued to their phones. Yeah. You know, kids are all on their iPads and their little game stuff, but you don't see people really carry a conversation anymore. Right. It's sad, honestly. Yeah. Because you kind of like, I don't know, like for me, it's like you take life away. You take that life for granted, you know, to experience, you know, the getting to know someone, the conversation, the interaction. Mm hmm is just so cold now right um going in and then coming out in, uh, in two different eras obviously when you went in things weren't as accepted like homosexuality wasn't accepted and then coming out every i mean everybody seems to be fine with people being gay it's not an issue nobody's getting stoned in the streets over it you know um there's not really protests over it now mm -hmm. now that i think the big thing is transgenders and whatnot but does that make you have hope for the future as far as like where we are going as a civilization and the acceptance for things you know what i would have to say yes or no you know because i would have to say like even though things are going the way they they do now i feel like it could still happen you know you i don't know um you know you see uh you know uh, lesbian couples or you know um guy couples that um, are trying to uh, adopt children, you know, and some are able to and some aren't, but there's still that little skepticism that, you know, well, you know, how can they raise, how can two females or two males really raise a child? It should be a female and a male, right. you know, have that, they're going to have that mentality that it's okay when it should be their decision, you know, right. whether that lifestyle if it's accepting but you know it's not because the children can get the love from two mothers or two fathers you know because they can but i think that even now it still happens and even though it's accepting people are depending where you're at you have like san antonio is still conservative you know right. isn't most so, of most of texas is isn't it so you kind of like still can face these things and you i mean 
yeah, we've come a long way, but I think there's still a lot more that needs to be, um, you know, a lot of change still as far as um, for the LGBTQ. Because you know what? You won't find an organization, you know, the 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 gay organization you or the LGBTQ really want to fight a case like ours. When we came home, we did reach out to them. And it was very difficult. It was something that, okay, when it comes to a child, we don't want to, you know, kind of touch it because that's a sensitive subject. Right, right. I don't know if I really want to get involved in that because, you know, I have kids here too. And I don't want that to, you know, kind of come on to me and then they start looking into me or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. You know, so it's it's still, I mean, it's difficult because it's such a sensitive issue and, and it's a topic that a lot of people don't want to face. Right. You know? And it hits home for, you know, uh, people with children, you know, if it's, you know, the gay couples or heterosexual couples, you know, when it comes to, to children, it's such a sensitive subject. Absolutely. I mean, people are very protective of their children. I mean, obviously, you know, you had a, you have a child, even though you didn't, you weren't able to be a part of his life. I'm sure there was still that mom, that mom aspect of, of you, yeah. you know, wanting to protect him, you know? So yeah, it's understandable to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when they started viewing your case, uh, what was that like? Did you have like a sense of hope? Obviously you said you, you kind of felt like God was giving you a second chance to be able to prove yourself. What, what was, what were those feelings like? You know what? It it was amazing to know that, you know, they were coming to interview us and they were going to start the documentary to kind of help, you know, put our story out. But it was so it was scary at the same time because, you know, I had been knocked down so many times over the years. Like I wrote, nobody answered. I wrote, nobody answered. You know, I reached out to the Innocence Project. They denied me the first time. You know, it was like um, and I didn't want to get my hopes up so high, you know, right. and but I knew that we still had like things were moving, you know, and then when, you know, Anna got out on parole and um, the Innocence Project was, you know, working on it. I was like, wow, is this really happening? You know, and even when we went to the county and the the, the van came to pick us up, I'm not going to lie. I was like, please, Lord, don't turn back and take us back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> made a mistake or something, you know? <laughs> so, um, uh, so when we end up at the county, it was like me, Cass, and Christy. And, you know, we were at the county kind of waiting, you know, for them to set bail and let us, you know, come home. And it still was, it didn't sink in. Even though I had left prison and I was at the county, it still didn't sink in. I was like, okay, is this really happening? And then um, right before we were going to get out, they were having issues with Cassie's paper, mm. her paperwork and stuff. And so she was like, no, y'all can go. And we're like, no, like we've come this far all together. Like we're all walking out together, you know? Right. And we uh, finally walked out. Um it was amazing. You know, there was so many people there to support us and everything. And you'll see that in the documentary, if you get a chance to look at it. Okay. We had a big, great support of people that were there and we walked out and everybody was hugging us. Our family was there and they were, you know, accepting and everything. And we got into the vehicle and drove off and I was sitting in there and I couldn't even cry. Cause I was just so like overwhelmed with everything, you know? Yeah. And, we ended up um, going to Anna's house and because Anna had gone on parole and she was um, a registered sex offender, my son was 18 and he wasn't allowed to come to her house. What? 
Why? Because um, as a registered sex offender, you can't have anyone under the age of 18. But he wasn't, he wasn't 18, you said? No, oh, he okay. was just 18. Oh, and okay. my son had, and Anna was on parole, so she had to live by her stipulations. So I crossed the street where my son was at, and that was the first time I held him since the day that I had, well, actually I had a visit with him when he was four. And I held him for the first time. And he, he said, mother, and hearing those words just broke me. And I just broke down in tears. And I told him, just hearing him and telling him I love him was just most amazing feeling ever a mother can have for a child, you know? And, um, and a lot of times his phone I would see and he would still have that picture of me and him. Oh. For the first time that he held me. And it was just, it was crazy. You know, um, that night, everything just seemed so unreal, you know, so real. We went to go eat and, you know, I kind of talked to him. But when I went back to my mom, she had an apartment and I sat on that sofa. I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't sleep that night. You know, I was so used to the loud noise. It was just so quiet and so still. It was like, what do I do? You know, and I kept talking turning because I wasn't used to sleeping you know I'm used to a hard bunk and <laughs> 17 years you know right and, I mean it was difficult I mean it was just the transition it was just um I don't know it, it was hard it was it was really hard and and um but it was it was amazing to be able to experience that with my son though I yeah I could imagine I I you, it's kind of crazy because you see these videos. I don't know if you if you're on social media at all, but they there's these videos um, that people post of like a parent who goes you know to Iraq or comes back from a war or from from a uh, active duty, and mm -hmm. they'll show up to the kid's school and the kid will come running and they're all excited because they haven't seen their their parent in, you know months, and those those videos like I don't know they do something to me. They get me like you know, happy and, um, if they're emotional and sad and I listening to your, that you tell that is surreal because that was, that was 17 years that you had missed out on. And then you're now holding them as an adult, essentially an adult. Yeah. It's so sad, but joy, like joyous at the same time. Right. Right. Cause you get that fulfillment that, Oh, wow. You know, I'm, I'm holding my baby and you know, he's always gonna be my baby <laughs> because you know, I missed out so much, but you know, and he's my only child, you know? And so he's my, like my everything, right. you know? Um, if I tell you David, that <laughs> it wasn't until last month, you know, I've been home 2013. Um, my son's married and we're, um, I've had my second grandchild. But if I tell you that not even a month ago was the first time that we sat down and talked. Wow. Um, when I first came home, I didn't realize, you know, he shared a lot with me. And, and you know, there's a lot of things he wished he would have done different. You know, he was living with his father and his stepmom. And, you know, he didn't know he was kind of being pulled with me and them, you know, because he had been with them for so long. And here I was, you know, his mom hadn't seen in 17 years. And, you know, he wanted to just be with me. Right. But in time, his dad and his stepmom were kind of pulling him, you know, right. um, it was hard for him and he wishes he would have done a lot of things differently, you know, but, um, but it was the first time that we talked and it was the first time that I can kind of see where, 
his his uh, his mind frame is at and and you know how life kind of treated him over the years because I asked him a lot of questions like how was your childhood you know how were you treated you know did ever anyone ever bully you you know what was your first love right. you know all those things you know yeah and um, and those are the things that you know you hold you know precious you know in your life of your children. I mean, for someone like you to have children that, you know, with their first walks, their teeth, you know, when they come out and yeah. the little things do that are just so memorable, you know, I was, I wasn't able to experience that. I, I can, I can relate to your son on some, in so many different aspects because I was in foster care and mm -hmm. I, I was taken away from my mom at nine years old. So I knew my mom, you know, going in. And being taken away so abruptly like that left left a hole, you know, because she I, I loved my mom. I adored her like I was, you know, she was like my best friend <laughs> for the longest time. And then, uh, you know, we were taken away and it left a hole. And so when I became an adult and I found her at, at the age of 18, kind of like, you know, your son and you, you know, reuniting, it was mm -hmm. it was the same thing. It was like like this feeling of joy and sadness because she had missed out on so much and she, she would never know. She still would never really know like everything that I had gone through. And just like how you really probably will never know everything your son went through. But, but that, I think it's beautiful that you guys were able to sit down and talk and have, and you were inquisitive and wanting to understand, understand, you know, what he had been through. That's very important. Yeah. You know, cause I want to know like, the man that he is now, you know, he's in the military. He's a Marine. Oh, cool. And, 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 and he, t you know, whenever he first came home, he talked about how he wanted to go do and, you know, protect the country and do all these things. And I'm like, he's such a good kid, you know? And, and that's my son. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, and then, and then coming home and then him leaving into the military, it was hard because we didn't have that time to kind of get to know each other and heal. Even though he did come, you know, come live with me after a little while, um, he ended up going to um, to Japan, and he was in, in Okinawa for a while. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard for him to come home, you know, during the holidays. And when he did, I mean, being young, you know, in your twenties, you come see your mom, yeah, yeah, but then you want to go see your buddies, dude. You want to go hang, <laughs> right? You know, go, did you miss out? You know, I'm in the military. I, you know, I want to go see what they're up to. Yeah. You know. And so, you know, we did spend our time together, but it wasn't like it is now. You know, now that he's a dad, you know, he's got two kids, he's married, you know, it, it, he's a little more settled and his way of thinking is different. So it's an adult kind of thing, you know, yeah. where uh, be there and for him to know that, you know, I'm here to help support him and, and um, you know, I'm here for anything that he needs. You know, I'm his mother. Like I tell him, I'm your mom. I'm always going to be here as long as God gives me breath. I will be by your side at any moment, you know? That's awesome. That is, a, that is beautiful because a lot of times, and in my situation included, um, you know, it, situations like that harden people and mm -hmm. they can look at it like, like for instance, from my, my mom's point of view, she at first didn't really want to have a relationship with me because she, you know, knew I had adopted parents and she didn't want to take away from what I had with them. And I'm like, no, like you're not, there's plenty of love to go around. And, right. You know, I can love everybody just as equally. And, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like your situation, your son was being pulled one way and you probably 
didn't want to be pulling back and it yeah. yeah it's a it's a balance that needs to be worked out but that's beautiful that you guys were able to work that out you know and, and there was time so you know like his dad and his stepmom and myself we had to sit down and talk and you know we did things together we you know sell you know on his birthday sometimes we will all get together and you have to be adults you know what i'm saying and yeah. we, you know, we have you know my son that you know he has his dad and his mother and we just have to be adults and act accordingly you know whether you or not like that's my son and that's his father you know right but really blessed that we're able to get along and and we're able to talk about things and, and things like that. And that's important to me because I don't ever want my son, like you said, to feel like he has to make a decision. Right. Because, you know, I'm grateful for everything that they did for him over the years. I'm so, you know, I'll always be, you know, grateful for that. Um, and like I, and I've told them both, you know, now he has me too in his life. So, you know, he has love from everywhere, you know, and it doesn't have to just be only from me, right. you know. I always believe the more love, the merrier, you know, exactly. So, you know, I mean, you can't go wrong to be, no. you know, and it, for him to feel supportive and have that, I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, cause yeah. not everybody like said, has that, you know, it can harden people or, you know, it, it, it can, you know, just continue to grow and you can share that love and, you know, make it together. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now, you obviously work at a print shop now, but when you got out of prison, what what did life look like? Were you did you just jump back into the workforce? Did you have anything you, any things you wanted to do when you got out? Are, do you have any goals that you are embarking on? Whenever okay, so whenever I first came home, um, like I said, we we're out on bond, right? So it was kind of hard. Well, for me, because you know the girls had ten and fifteen. I had 37 and a half. And so I still hadn't completed my time where, you know, if things didn't go right, I would still have to go to prison and finish my time. And so during the time frame, I was like, I didn't know what to do. Like, what if it didn't turn out the way it did? And I had to go back to prison. Mm -hmm. It was difficult for me. I didn't know. I didn't, you know, I was afraid to, like, you know, I. I first went home and I was like, I need to work. I need, you know, being in prison and being told what to do every day. You know, you have a routine. You know, I needed that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I needed that. And so I needed something to look forward to every day, get up in the morning and go to work and do, you know, routine things. And so like two weeks after I got out, uh, I, I found a job at the print shop and, um, and I called in and yeah, for a few months, um, I ended up working at Toyota. And if I tell you, it, you know, you work in the assembly line, and you I'm sorry, you're cutting out. I don't know if it's my internet or if it's... Can you hear me just fine? Huh? Okay. You mind, huh? So it's on my end. Can you can you t talk? Uh-huh. So yeah, I ended up working for Toyota. Okay, I can hear you just fine now. <laughs> so I worked for Toyota for about three years, um, and which they they knew my background, they knew that I was fighting the case, and um, they worked, hired. You worked on the assembly line. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I work yeah. on. I work at GM. So. Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I worked for Toyota, 
and um, I worked in the paint department. And so, and you know, the, the hour is six to six. We have the rotating shifts, two weeks, days, two weeks, nights. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what? I loved it because being in prison for so long, you know, the long hours, the, you know, that kept me occupied. Like my focus was work, 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 work. Right. You know? And while I was waiting to see what was going to happen, you know, I had went to our hearing and we we're just kind of waiting for the, for the courts to decide what was going to happen. But I didn't want to buy a vehicle because I was like, okay, what if, it, what if I don't get exonerated? I'm going to leave my family with a vehicle again. What if I tried, you know, I couldn't get an apartment because it only I tried to get a home, and then I was like, if I buy a home, I'm going to leave my family in debt. Oh, so what do I do? I don't do anything. I just keep doing what I do, and I do what I do. I could not build or look forward to a future because I didn't know what was going to happen. You know? And so 2016, when I did, and uh, we had already gone our, got, you know, Everything and I was like, I need to believe that things are going to turn out. And so I ended up getting me a vehicle. You know, I got me a you know a little Tacoma, and then I saved up some money and went and got a home. And you know, your credit score from coming out of 2013 to 2016 really worked on that to be able to afford a home. Right. So I finally got a home, and um, damn. There in November, right before Thanksgiving, we got exonerated. Wow. And if I tell you, when I asked my attorney, I mean, is this true? What do you mean we won? What is that? Won? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and I sat there in my living room because I had worked nights that day, that night. And I was, I got up and I was like, we won. What does that mean? We won. So I asked my attorney, he's like, we won. And you got exonerated. And I'm like, what? And so my son was like, Mom, what's wrong? Runs out of his room. And I was like, baby, I got exonerated. I'm free. <laughs> no shit, Mom, running. And I'm like, can you believe it? So, of course, we're both crying, hugging each other and everything. And, of course, the media gets whiffed that, you know, we got exonerated. So we start, you know, the interviews and all that together. And if I tell you, I sat on the sofa and I was like, what do I do now? I've been fighting for 20-something years. Right. What do I do now? What do I really want to do with my life? Now that I have the chance that I'm not, that they're not going to take me away from my family and my baby, what do I really want to do? I never asked myself that question. And I never thought I had that chance. Wow. You know? And it took me a while before I can, you know, sit down and I'm like, and then I was like, man, this, you haven't been in school so long. I don't know how to use it. I, you know, I'm a one back finger bandit there typing, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, okay. So I decided, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to work. So I kind of like, you know, built up a little bit and did what I had to do. And then I finally had the guts to do the, take the TSI test and go forward and start school. Wow. And that's where I was. But to be honest with you, it's like you fight for so long. And then you're finally free, and then you're sitting there, and you're like, what do I do? Now what? Now, yeah, now It's like, how do I walk again? You know, it's like, I got it going here, and then here I am. Now what do I do here? Right. You know? And shortly here, I have, you know, I was in a relationship, and, you know, kind of that. You know, that's difficult, too, because 
you know, meeting people, you have to kind of tell them about your past and it's hard, you know? I couldn't imagine because, I mean, oftentimes, like, my story comes up, people are like, you know, just through conversation, people want to know your past. And so, like, I constantly have to tell people, like, oh, yeah, I was in foster care. And then I go through that whole spiel or whatever. I couldn't imagine having to tell people your story. Can imagine that because instantly they either look at you with like judgment or they're like, oh my gosh, like you are a strong person for going through that. You know, I had a lot of people that worked in the line with me, too. And um, they were working in the line and they saw the news. And when they would see me on the news, they were like, they would come to work and look at me and then they're like, and nobody <laughs> wanted to ask me. You know, nobody would ask me anything. Right. They might tell you the conversations. They're like, oh, have you, you know, hey, we went to go eat here. Have you been here? And I'm like, no. Oh, have you seen this movie? And then I'm like, no. Where have you been all these years? And I'm like, oh, my God. Don't ask me. <laughs> it's so sad that I had, like, no relation to my coworkers. Right. You know, I couldn't relate to them about a movie that came out last year. Or, you know, uh, or, you know, a restaurant that had opened, you know, back, you know, back then. I was, oh, yeah, I remember that was their that's been gone for like 10 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so like, Oh my God, like how do you, and it was hard for me to like get up to date with everything and just have a normal conversation with someone. You know, and I would feel like I couldn't talk or I, you know, I didn't want to talk cause I didn't want nobody to kind of feel like, or, you know, judge me, right. you know, like right. judge me for my past and then be like, Oh wow. She is the one that's there or whatever. But, you know, and, but you know what? I never to this day have had anyone come to me in a negative way or aggressively or anything like that. You know, I've been truly blessed that um, no one has ever tried anything like that. That's amazing. Especially considering that you worked at a, a factory. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I, I know how people are in, in a factory and they're not, they're not nice. They're pretty judgmental. You know, they just like to assume things and, um, but that's that's remarkable that nobody has come at you that way. Yeah, it's a blessing for real. Because I always, you know, I always wonder when's that person going to come out and be like, oh, that's that child molester, and no, 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 and go off, and you know. Yeah. God, you know, and I'm very fortunate because people will come up and be like, aren't you Liz, one of the San Antonio Four? And I'm like, should I say yes? Say no. <laughs> Is this going to be a good thing or is this going to be a bad thing? So you've kind of become uh, like a celebrity, right? Kind of, you know, people say that, but I don't, I don't feel like that, you know? Well, uh, but a lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, can we take pictures or, you know, things like that. And, and, um, and of course, you know, I don't say no, but, um, but yeah, a lot of people were recognized from, from the documentary and they're in San Antonio where they're like, man, you know what? I, I never even heard of that story until you guys came home, you know? Right. And they're like, I just, I can't believe that that's what was happening during the time. And I'm like, a lot of us did it, you know, the social media, the way it is now is just, I mean, you can do everything and anything on social media. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing, you know, the things that happen now. Well, and back then there wasn't social media. So the coverage, it probably got like no coverage at all. Well, yeah, and then when they did have coverage, we were like all these monsters, you know, we were just like real, you know, painted this horrible picture of us, 
You know, and then I was so skeptical about that whenever, you know, they were trying to write stories about our case and stuff. Because I'm like, are they going to try to write good or are they going to try to write bad? Right. You know? And that was the same thing with the documentary. Whenever she first approached us about making a documentary, I was like, man, you know. What's the narrative? Yeah. You know, are you going to tell our story or are you going to try to, like, you know, make us look bad or, you know, what's going to go on? Right. And um, we were like, we only want the truth. We want our story to be told the truth, the right way. You know, what? nothing ever happened for this case to even come about. Right. And so, um, and the documentary, I mean, they did a very good job on it. I'm, I'm excited to watch it. I can't wait to watch it. I, I, I honestly didn't know that there was one. I wish that the guy from the Innocence Project had told me about it because I would have watched it before I talked to you. Yeah, yeah, because you would have been able to understand and kind of relate to, you know, what we've been through in the time and, and be able to, you know, kind of put yourself in, in that error right. of, you know, because um, it was crazy, <laughs> you know, the, all the things that were said and done in my trial and how the DA even, um, when I went to trial, they used another Elizabeth Ramirez to try to uh, inflame the jury's mind to make them to be- believe that I had a past. What? Yes. And it was uh, another individual that was like, I don't I think they accused me of the crime that I wasn't even born yet. You know, and just to inflame the jury's mind because, you know, right after my case, um, he became a judge oh, on, my God. on the same seat that the judge that passed away in the court that I was tried in. Oh, my God. I do not. And so, you know, people go to lengths to try to get to where they want and they yeah. forget that they took an oath in the system. Right. You know, you're supposed to seek justice and truth, not your own vengeance and your own, you know, you're whatever it is you're seeking for yourself i'm trying to figure out a word for it but it's personal gain yeah you know that's all it is is they're trying to use and and they're not seeking justice they're just they're just trying to use the people who come through their courtroom as props to get themselves in a a higher seat yes exactly as well (laughs) yeah that's exactly what it was and and that's what he what happened and it was really sad you know that um that my case, even even going through the trial and everything, and you would hear, you know, the the questioning and stuff where the the stories kept changing, you know, and, and whenever I would I went on 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 trial and I went um, I testified for myself, the girls were in the courtroom and they smiled at me. Now, if I had done such a horrible heinous crime, why would they have done that? Right. You know, if they were so terrified of me, you would have thought that they wouldn't have been in the same courtroom as myself. You know what I'm saying? So there were so many things that I had so many questions for, and I was just so, like, so unemotional about everything because I was like, how? How is this happening? You know? And then it's hard because they're females and I'm a female, you know? And it's not like you can use DNA. It's not like you can use all these things. Right. You know, it's just on their word or their, you know, their dad and grandma's word opposed to our word. So there was no evidence. No. So um, in the documentary, you'll see that, um, the they had at the three o'clock hymen and the medical examiner actually has had signed an affidavit saying that that was old science and it was actually i believe the flash from the picture that they took that showed so it was really the flash that made it look like there was something that could have happened wow and it was old science so um you know it's crazy but you know that that's all they had was that yeah was that and you got convicted on that just hearsay 
because they said they were playing with dolls and everything else. And then when my niece came forward, everything she said was like, yeah, we played with dolls, but it was nothing like that, you know? And she goes on to talk about in the documentary how I would cook for them and how they were when we were growing up. And, you know, and, you know, the sad thing is that what people do, you know, you pick up your nieces and your nephews. I mean, I didn't have any kids at the time. They're like, hey, you know, will you watch the kids and so and so? I'm like, sure, why not? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, family, that's what we do. They want to go out and have a good time. They've been working all week. Like, right. you know, what's so wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That's what families do. But, you know, during that whole time, it was like, how still, you know, all because my brother-in-law didn't like the fact that I was gay and he was interested in me and wrote me letters and, and he refused to, you know, to take, you know, to, to engage in any of that. And, um, and so he lied and he made up this big old story because he didn't like the fact that I was gay. How old was uh, your niece? I think they were like seven and nine. Wow. So she was old enough to, to know. Yeah. And to tell the truth and you know time. i mean even at the age that, that she was like in her 20s when she came forward with it he's st- you know he still tried to have that control by trying to take the kids away from her right you know so it was just it's crazy that you know he and it you know the the sad thing about it is that we're not the only case it's like he marries women and then like takes the kids or has kids with them and says you know that they you know, were assaulted and tries to take custody of them. And it's like, I believe there was like a 10 year old, um, one of his stepsons, um, he ended up accusing them of the same thing. And the little boy is actually a registered sex offender. Because of it. Because of it. And so it's like an ongoing thing. There was someone that he accused, I think my sister's, one of my sister's friends or brother-in-laws or something. And they had accused them of it. And there was supposedly like a 10 year old kid that had molested them or something. And that was before us that he had done that and went and got my sister at gunpoint. So it's just like a, a pattern that he had. And you kind of um, see it in the documentary. You know, they kind of talk about it a little bit. And he's just, I don't know. And, you know, we can't do anything about it. Even if we try to, it's what, a civil case? Right. You know, there's not anything you can really do. But, you know, I, you know, like they say, karma. What goes <laughs> Um, eventually it may not be today or tomorrow, but yeah. you know, we all pay for the things that we do in life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, whether you believe in karma or just, I believe in like whatever, if you do good, good things are going to typically happen to you. If you do bad things, then, you know, bad things are going to happen to you. And that, I guess that's karma, but I don't know. It's just, that, that is, that is insane. Um, and you were obvious, you and the three other women were compensated for, for your time, but obviously that's not near enough, you know, to make up for the lost time and the loss of relationships and, and everything, correct? Yeah, um, you know, Anna lost, you know, her dad in the process. I lost my dad, uh, Cass lost her dad, and Christy lost her mom. So, you know, all these years that, you know, we didn't have with our family and we did, it wasn't enough time to to spend with them, you know, and um, there's no amount of money or, you know, anything that can make up for that. You know, they can't bring back, you know, all all the memories we lost, but you know what else? They can't ever take back all the stuff we saw, all the things that we went through in life in there, you know, and that have made us, you know, the women that we are today. And I think that that's why, you know, everyone kind of does their part. You know, Cassie works for uh, domestic violence 
Nana works with the Innocence Project as well okay. and continue to do, you know, talks, interviews and things and trying to get my paralegal, you know, to try to help in any kind of way I can, you know, and um, because I feel like there's no way I can get anything more than that. I'm already like in my for late 40s, you know, <laughs> sure I'm, you almost, like I'm in my 50s, almost 60, you know, but, um, you know, to me, it's like I'm taking that step at least, you know, try to educate myself and, you know, try to help other people. Right. And I it's important for people to know, like, the impact of wrongful conviction that, it, you know, it's not only us that are doing the time, but it's our family, our children. Yeah. And it affects everyone around us, you know, society itself. You know, um, <laughs> I did a paper just recently on the Central Park Five, you know, when they see us documentary. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a passion. They're like, Liz, why are you always doing, you know, wrongful convictions and, wrong, you know, and I'm not going to tell my the students, you know, I don't. I don't know if I should open that door or not, or like, well, you know, I always do wrongful convictions or things that go, you know, with the legal system because I have a passion because it's affected me. Right. You know, I was, you know, I'm an exoneree and I was wrongfully accused and, and, you know, my life, whole life changed in one instant. Right. Someone said something. Mm -hmm. You know, my whole life changed in 1994, you know, and, and I feel that people need to, to be aware of that, you know? Right. And so that for me, if I can at least plant that seed somewhere, then I feel like I've, I've given back, you know, even though they took so much from me, I'm able to give that back. That's, if that that's truly amazing because for somebody who, you know, was, I guess, essentially abused by the system, you know, you were thrown into a system when you shouldn't have been, it was unjust. And for you to want to give back and to help is truly remarkable it kind of shows what kind of person you are because a lot of people uh, myself included when when you get thrown into a position that you don't want to be in because and you had no no say in the matter a lot of people become bitter and you know I probably would be bitter and I I don't know if I would want anything to do with that system once I got out of it you know what you know what David what makes me think like even because people would tell me like I don't understand. You all are always laughing and you have so much like happiness and so much wanting to give still. And that's because, you know, I never wanted the, the system to feel or even, you know, um, yeah, you know, the justice system to feel that they broke me so much that, you know, I'm like, no, I got my freedom and I'm going to stay quiet. I feel like this is my way to say, no, you did wrong. And look at me. I'm a human being. I'm not a number, you know, this is just another case. I'm not eight two nine six eight nine. No, I'm Ramirez. I was wrongfully convicted. You know, I'm not that number. And I feel like I ha if if I don't speak that out and I don't try to do that, make that difference, then they won. You know, and it and it's the same thing like with Javier, like to let him know that he took that from me. But and for me to to go out and talk about it and and to not be angry. You know, my whole life was changed. But you know what? I'm a better person. You know, I learned, you know, so much while I was incarcerated and it built my character and, you know, I'm a strong woman behind it. And, um, and I'm going to share that, you know, that, um, that I want other people, you know, to not, if I, if there's anything I can do to prevent another person from going through what I went through, then I'm doing the right thing, you know? Absolutely. So, um, and for me, that's where I get my, I guess my peace from it. You know, because I don't want them, I don't want the system to feel, you know, if I was angry, it, it'll just keep eating me up and I can never be happy. I can never be. Happy. 
you know? Right. And I don't ever want to feel that way. Well, I think you're doing a great job. Obviously, you're an advocate for, you know, other people who have been wrongfully convicted. And I think that there's a huge pushback right now um, mm -hmm. due to the, you know, just the internet and having like podcasts and YouTube mm -hmm. and all these different um, all these streaming services, you know, like where your documentary is, wherever that's at, um, due to all these platforms covering like these type of stories, I think there's a huge, um, there's a huge understanding that a lot of people have been wrong, wrongfully convicted and are still in prison to this day for things that they should not be in prison for. And so I think there's a pretty big pushback and thanks to people like you, that is possible. Yeah, I think it's, like I said, I think it's important because, you know, um, like I said, if they don't see it, then you'll never know it. Right. You don't hear it, you know, no one will ever know or understand, you know. So, and uh, like I said, a lot of people don't realize what the wrongful conviction, the impact that it has, you know, in society itself, you know. Yeah. When I was thinking about, you know, um, uh, the Central Park Five, and I was like, you know, these kids were 16 years old. You know, I was 19, but these kids were 16 years old. You know, none of them even knew each other, wow. you know, and they were telling on each other and telling on each other. They didn't even know each other. But, you know, these coerced confessions, the way these interrogations are, I mean, that's what we fight today so that they can tape interrogations. They can see how they're coercing them, right. how they're like, you were there, you know, and then you're so tired. And for hours, I don't know if you saw the documentary, but. For hours, they were questioned. They were hungry. They were young. Their parents were there. You know, like, come on. Like, why are you doing it? Because the DA wanted you have to convict someone, and it was them. Right. They didn't the truth. Right. Because so blinded to not look for justice and just be like, no, it's them. And it's they instead of looking at the big picture. Right. You know? And it's sad. It is sad. I was, I was going to say that's extremely sad that, you know, because it, it's just breaking people down to where they just, they just want to get out of there. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> Can I go now? Yeah. Yes, exactly. There's a saying that I had that I said in my, on my thing, my, uh, my speech today, and it was with Corey Wise. He says, you know, I just wanted to go and they said I would go, you know, and I just, and I still just want to go. <laughs> and, and it's sad because, you know, was there because he was going to support his friend and he did the most time out of all of them wow. you know and that's sad that the system would do that and break these children and people like me and you know others that have been there for 30 40 years another individual that's going to get executed because they don't want to overturn his case like you can't bring him back right you can't after you execute these people that are innocent you cannot bring them back same thing with, you know, um, what is the guy the first, uh, I can't remember, I'm thinking, but, um, you know, just uh, so many cases that you just can't, you know, you can't undo these things. No. And you, you can give their family justice, but what justice did he receive, you know, when they, they were executed and put, you know, in death penalty and you can't give that. They had to die with that guilt on them because that's what society said. You know, and that's so sad. It is sad. And I'm sure, it's, you know, at a certain point, you, you might even start believing that you did it because they want you to do it. <laughs> they want yeah. you to be the one who did it. Because they keep telling you, you know, you did it. You know, you did yeah. it. It's like, you know, trying to feed you and feed you. And like, okay, fine, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
the thing, okay, so I did it, you know, I'm done with it, you know, and then not even knowing the impact that it has on you when you confess to just that, you know? Yeah. That is, that is insane. I'm glad that you are an advocate for people like that. Um, And I'm glad that I was able to talk to you. This has been an incredible, incredible experience. I wish that we could have done this in person. I uh, when I uh, was talking to the guy from the innocence project i wish i could remember his name too um mm-hmm. the guy who set this up but mm-hmm. i was like all right is it in is, does she live in michigan because i want to make this happen in person he's like no she's in texas and i'm like oh yeah. <laughs> i would have loved to meet you but maybe one day yeah definitely um well thank you for doing this is there anything else you want to say before we go before we wrap this up um, no, I just, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity, though, I really am to be able to kind of discuss, you know, my case, but also to be able to, to share with you the wrongful conviction and get to know someone, the impact that it's had on me and my family and the other girls, you know, and I appreciate you, you know, putting the story out and, and educating others because it's people like yourself that help us in society and, you know, in uh, social media, the people can be educated, you know, and you might have a chance, you know, that, your podcast or whatever and they're like hey you know i remember i'd seen it you know how do i get in contact with them or what can i do or you know and i think that's important and so i really appreciate the opportunity for that absolutely anytime anytime you want to come back on just reach back out (laughs) i would love to talk to you um and i uh i'm gonna send you an email because i want to send you a shirt and everything podcast so thank you yeah uh thank you again for doing this it was a pleasure it was a pleasure meeting you also. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, are you on social media at all? Yes, I'm um I'm do you on Facebook. Plug that at all or do you not want that out there? Oh no, yeah, you can you yeah, you can um share that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Where where can people find you on social media? Um I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Um I'm on Twitter also and Elizabeth Ramirez. So you know Liz Ramirez. Elizabeth Ramirez. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you can reach out to me through that and, and anywhere. So, um, yeah, okay. feel free. Awesome. And I respond, so. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you again for doing this, and I hope you have a good night. Thank you. You too. All right.